Welcome to the Opportunity Zone. We call it that because there are so many investment opportunities waiting for you. Not just conventional, but also private and alternative ones. Your hosts are Chris Magda and Dan Summers. This show is going to move you to change the way you look at your investments and your future. Now, here's private lender Chris Magda and industry veteran Dan Summers. And good morning, everyone. I'm your uh, host, Chris Magda, direct private lender, and I'm here as always with our guest host, industry veteran and pioneer, Dan Summers. Dan, I just wanted to start off the show today. We've got a a great show. We're going to have Bo on just a little bit. I just want to talk about Bo Berry here in just a while. But just to kick things off, uh, tell us, just tell us a little bit more about how, uh, you know, when you first got started in the industry, uh, what kind of inspired you and, and what kind of uh, led you to this this path in this field. Oh wow! I don't know if I can remember that far back. It's been a few. It's been a few <laughs> years. It's kind of like what Willie Nelson once said. It took him 28 years to become an overnight success. But there was no clear path. In fact, it's funny. My wife and I were chatting yesterday about how we landed up where we are today, and the circuitous path we took, and how one little blink of the eye could have changed everything one way or the other, whether we moved to California or moved back to Chicago. But at the end of the day, just as fate would have it and all the stars aligned, I I had an opportunity to get into the commercial real estate business back in, I'm I'm not going to believe this, back in 1976. And um, which was just a total stranger for me uh, coming out of John Carroll University with a business degree and wanted to get into public relations. But in any event, you know, we, we grew that little company, David M. Kaufman Associates, to one of the largest commercial brokerages in the United or in the, in the city of Chicago. I was part of the, one of the very first CCIM classes taught by Sheldon Good in Chicago. So I go way back, and my gray hair will, will show that and illustrate that. But at the end of the day, I stayed with real estate. I, I never got out. I, I, I left uh, there and moved down to um, San Antonio to help a friend of mine run a savings loan back in 1986 when that was a disaster. We turned that bank around and for some reason decided to move back to uh, into the Midwest. My wife's from the Pittsburgh area, so we decided to buy a house there and stay in the real estate business. And as things would have it, I landed up with a job with the Rockwell family, the Rockwells, Kent Rockwell, managing 18 of their, their, their GSA buildings. And then eventually decided to go off on my own. And that was the beginning. So a little twinkle in my eye. And 20 years later, we grew it to a $2 billion portfolio. And I underwrote its its original IPO and sold the company. And uh, so, you know, that's the last 40-some years of my life, frankly, in about uh, four minutes. But at any event, I've always stayed in the space, love it, had a lot of fun in it. Learned a lot. Most important things I learned were the things not to do, not so much what to do. And then by happenstance, we got lucky with the pie eating contest. We snuck in at the very end with our IPO and, and hit a grand slam. You know, there's a lot of people out there that, and a lot of our investors that come to us from on, in the private lending world that always ask, you know, how do I make that transition going from working from the man per se into the private real estate investment world? You kind of made up several transitions there. Take us through that a little bit. You know, you, you said 1976, that, the, that climate, that real estate climate from there, and then you had another transition there in Chicago. Kind of take us through that a little bit 
and help us understand, because you made a transition more so from, from a more corporate perspective into the private perspective. How did you make that transition? How was that for you? Well, risky. Uh, and it's got to be a collective decision. I'll be honest with you. Okay. We haven't rehearsed this conversation. So, you know, I'm just telling you that it's a very risky proposition. Mm-hmm. It's got to be complete buy-in from everyone. Your wife's got to be good with it. Uh, financially, it's risky. It's unnerving. You better know what you're doing. But at the end of the day, there's an old saying I've used for decades, and it's, you know, you can't win a poker ham unless you're at the table. So you've got to be all in. And when you're all in, I mean seven days a week, you've got to drink and eat and digest real estate, look for opportunities, and leave nothing on the table. Leave nothing out of the, on the table. My best deals were found accidentally. My, my capital to invest was you know, not being afraid to ask. Uh, and, you know, you just got to put it all on the table. It's all or nothing. And don't be afraid to lose. You're going to lose. The, the objective here, Chris, is to win more than you'll lose. That's it. Don't be afraid to lose once in a while. But you're going to. But at the end of the day, win more than you lose. And so did you find, did you find more of your success? Like when you look at verticals, what, what did you find to be the vertical that stuck with you? And why did you choose that one or that, that few? You know, there's obviously a couple maybe, but what, 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 what verticals did you choose in real estate? Or did you, or did you progress through them? Because I talked to a lot of real estate investors that maybe they start off on the lower end, right? They didn't start off in multifamily. They just started off in a single family residence or, you know, or, or a multi one to four. And then next thing, how do you get from that point moving up towards the multifamily? Because you've done some some massive deals. So how, how do yeah. you how did you how did you get there? Well, thinking big, I came from. A, keep in mind, um, I came from the Rockwell family, so we always had massive asset management assignments. Mm. So I was inducted into that that world from day one, basically. Yeah, uh, and even before that, when I was down in Texas, okay, it's a different we, mindset, right? It's a different yeah, mindset. The way you think. Try to take us through it, because for a real estate investor that, let's say, didn't come from there, but they want that, they want to glean from your knowledge of the way that you think. That's what we're after. So, kind of walk us through that that thought process and how you how you approach, what your approach was. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, you've got to have a grandiose approach, but right. first of all, numbers are numbers, bricks are bricks, mortar is mortar. It is what it is. Okay, so you underwrite a, a fix and flip as well as you underwrite a you know two hundred thousand square foot retail uh, mm-hmm. deal. So, I mean, you look at the rent roll, if any, you look at the value. Uh, proposition. You look at the cap rates going in. It's all arithmetic. It's not even math anymore until you start looking into internal rates of return. So the mindset has got to be larger, but the basics, the rudimentary approach is exactly the same. You just have to have a higher risk tolerance. Now, that's not something you learn from a book. Uh, It's something that's a life lesson. Okay, uh, uh, the, the risk and reward has to be acknowledged. And if you have that personality that you don't mind risking because you know you're going to wake up tomorrow and the next day and the next day, if you don't mind risking, okay, there's going to be a bigger reward there. So my mindset has always been risk reward oriented. All right. It's just that my risk level, my risk tolerance was basically higher than most. Uh, and that's, once again, goes right back to everyone's buying into the risk. My wife and had, had had long discussions about this, but I also was all in. So this isn't a, this isn't a job, okay? This isn't a job. This isn't even a career. This becomes part of your life. 
So when you're up on Sunday mornings, you know, you're thinking about, uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, I've got tons and tons of examples, but I learned most of what I know at the feet of a young New York operator, younger than me at the time. In fact, his father invented the uh, uh, fire retardant drapes. And he came to New York and he actually hired me away from the Rockwells, number one. And he would, he had his underwriting on a little piece of paper uh, on his pencil and a pencil on, on his palm, but he underwrote deals on the fly and he had a monstrous tolerance for, for pain, but he was so analytical that he called me one time, I'll never forget this, and this is a long time ago, on a Saturday evening to ask me why the light was on in the elevator penthouse. Mm. Think about that. Why the light was on in the elevator penthouse of a 40-story uh, office building downtown Pittsburgh. Now, I managed it for him. Right. And I, th- I took that as a life lesson. Man, oh, man. So take that and apply that to a business platform. You now get very uh, anal about it. And I eventually, within a couple of years, quit him and started my company with a twinkle in my eye. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. So uh, my life, life lesson was to, you know, study analytics, be anal about everything, you know, shoot for the stars and settle for, for you know, a planet, but always be out there and run with people smarter than you. Mm-hmm. Run with people smarter than you and don't be afraid to ask questions. And that little that little endeavor led to, you know, a, a little retail building that we put under contract and found a tenant and closed on it. And that led to another one, to another one, to another one. And then within a few years, I actually owned half of Pittsburgh, downtown Pittsburgh commercial real estate. Some of the, the finest building in these buildings in the United States, like the Frick building, the Westinghouse building, the Clark building. But that was from shooting high and, and, and aligning ourselves with the right banks and the right partners and the right underwriting team, et cetera. So it's just a matter of, you know, getting your mind to adjust to your thinking, okay? If you think you can do it, and your mind will tell you you can't do it, but you've got to get it in line and acknowledge the fact that it's achievable. Just make it happen. And don't, don't be afraid to, 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 to fail. And that's the whole point of this, this podcast when you and I decided to do this, Chris, is to bring folks on that – you know, dug the trenches. They're not the ones that occupy the trenches. Who's the right. guys that started their own companies, put their buck out there, put their dollars out there, right? That's what this whole thing's about. So this isn't going to be a run-of-the-mill uh, endeavor or podcast. These are guys that got their fingernails dirty, that went out there and, and did it day in, day out, and made it happen. There's no magic to this. There's no magic to being successful. You just got to have, you know, the patience uh, to endure, you know, I appreciate a lot of what you said because when I when I go and I do site visits um, with with sponsors, and one of the first things we do is get up there. You, you, I hear a lot of what you're saying, and to whiteboard some of that out. I hear you saying, you know, focus on details, even though you're gonna you're gonna shoot for the stars. Focus on the details. Put a team together that has to be a rock star team, right? So so what is that team alignment gonna look like? And then be prepared to take risk and fail. That's what I hear you saying. Oh, there's no doubt about it, but you got to pay attention to the details. And I'll tell you a real quick story about details. I, I can visualize this. We lived in, I raised my kids in a farm and I can remember sitting 
uh, I remember putting a Food Lion anchored shopping center under contract years ago in Athens, Georgia, of all places. Great center. We were big proponents of Food Lions. We owned a ton of them. But in any event, we found one whose Food Lion lease was to expire within like, I don't know, 16, 18 months, maybe a year, and they discounted the heck out of the price, probably by two, three million bucks. I don't remember the exact number. But in any event, uh, we got the right price. We loved the deal. We loved the market. We were big proponents of buying in college towns, et cetera. So I remember on a Sunday morning getting a glass of milk. And it's a true story. Sitting down at my a dining room table with this voluminous lease, food line lease. And I started the beginning and it says uh, food line, uh, see addendum attached here too. So I flipped to the back. It's an extension. It's a 20-year extension. Food Lions extended their lease by 20 years, and the operators didn't even know it. The owners certainly didn't. The property managers didn't realize or didn't convey that. And that's just pay attention to the little stuff. The big stuff takes care of itself. That's a true story. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting. You talk about you know the four corners of a of a contract or an agreement, and you think about you know no different than t- you know when you're searching title or when you know you even mentioned the uh, the light being on in the building. It's those details that make the difference, isn't it? Oh, no doubt. And you know, Bull Berry's going to be our next uh, right, our next guest. And I bought bought a several hundred units from Bo. And I remember one of the buildings we bought from him. You know, we decided to get a. A, a structural survey, and thank God we did because we got over fifteen thousand dollars worth of damages uh, as a result of that survey uh, uh, discounted at the time of the purchase. So it's just the little things you got to pay attention to, and you know due diligence obviously is all encompassing. So don't take that so lightly because that can mean dollars and cents at the closing table. Also, just a little life lesson. Yeah, that's a, that's a phenomenal point because as and, and Bo will be on here in just a little bit. Um, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to asking him some, some pointed questions because he's also just an industry leader. But um, you think about the markets that are coming up, too, that we're going to see. And there's going to be transitions in the market, obviously, in 2021 versus um, from some of the leftovers of 2020. And details are really going to matter. There's going to be a lot of opportunities out there. Um, and we, focusing in on those minute details will be the difference in, in making it or breaking. That's for sure. No doubt. Uh, you know, the pandemic, you know, is God awful. No doubt about it. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, opportunities will arise. I already see opportunities arising as we speak. There's people aligning themselves with opportunity funds. Uh, we at Evest Technology uh, see most of them because we have some of the larger syndicators uh, in the United States as clients. And I see some of the deals uh, right now. Uh, that they're negotiating the purchase of. And I thought, my God, this is a time to be in business. There's really opportunity out there. And then in addition to that, there's a lot of capital out there chasing deals for alternative investing. You know, just looking it, at that through, uh, through uh, REIN just the other day, that, that there's more money out there today than ever before. And, and, I, and the, the answer is those who are prepared, who have everything in order, have themselves aligned property and can take advantage of that are going to make massive gains and massive strides forward. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I, I've seen a number of peaks and valleys over my short 40-year career, and it's those people that take advantage of them uh, that will become the next billionaires. I wrote a blog a few months ago about the next billionaires, and there's going to be billionaires made as a result of this of this pandemic. Uh, I've seen it a number of times before. 
So you just have to make sure, you know, your gun's loaded, all right, and you got a good team, as you suggested, Chris, uh, underwriting team, okay, and then start getting your capital, both debt and equity, uh, aligned and get it, you know, get the trigger ready and start looking and start shopping everywhere. Get yourself, you know, a plan, okay? Get yourself, don't just shotgun it. Get yourself a plan. Am I going to look in, you know, uh, state capitals. I'm going to look in college towns. I'm going to just, you know, wine and dine some bankers and look at some REO kind of stuff. So at the end of the day, get a plan together, align your capital, your debt, and your equity. It's a lot of it out there, as you suggested, and then start looking. You know, you bring up an interesting point as far as the, you know, I, we used to call it the hunt, right? What, am, what kind of properties am I going to hunt down? What am I going to What's going to be, you know, as, as an investor group or an investor individual, putting that team together, what am I really going to look for? What's going to be my focus? How, how does one kind of, from your perspective, and I know we don't have a lot of time, but how, maybe we can get into the, the last segment, but just be thinking about that. How does one really decide what's right for them? What, how did you know what was right for you as you started to go forward? Did just the opportunities just present themselves? What was kind of your thought process around that? Well, we were a little different than most. Most guys had a very strict business plan and adhere to it 24-7. I'm going to just buy multifamily. I'm going to just buy it in the Midwest. I'm going to buy no less than 100 units. Uh, not us. We were opportunity driven. So if we found a shopping center in Naples, Florida, which we did, we bought it. If we found a mall in Iowa, that was opportunistic, we bought it. If we found a high-rise apartment building on the Three Rivers in Pittsburgh, we bought it. Uh, so we were opportunity-driven. So, I mean, that's just another segment of the yeah. industry. Okay, just chase deals. Yep. And if you can manage them, you got a strong management team, and you know what the heck you're doing in underwriting. That's the key, okay? Don't let anything slip through the cracks. If you can underwrite it correctly, you trust your team, and you got a great property management external team or internal team that signs off on the due diligence, put your capital together. The money's there to, be able to buy it. Uh, so yeah, we, absolutely. We we're, gonna, we're absolutely going to get into that into that uh, for our, in our, in our next show too, is, talk, is talking deeper into underwriting, deeper into, um, you know, getting, as we said, in the trenches of how, how does the structure of a deal work? What makes deal, some deals work and some deals fall apart? The ones that look, I like one of the things you always say is the shiny things. That looks really great, then all of a sudden it turns into a disaster, and we're going to get into that a little bit. And some of it's timing, but um, I'm looking forward very much to having Bo Barry on here in just a few moments, and um, and to getting into more about the relationships with with that you've had with him and the deals that you guys have done as well. Sure. Well, a little bit about Bo. You know, Bo and I go back quite a few years. He sold me some product uh, down there in Gainesville once again. You know, we were looking at college towns. Uh, Bo had the opportunity to show us a couple of value-add multifamily deals, but Bo's been around a while. He's been doing this, schlepping this stuff since 1999. Uh, for the last 10 years, he's owned the Coldwell Banker commercial franchise with some other partners uh, there in Gainesville. Uh, but he was, this, is, this is important to note, and this gets back to buying the right kind of deals. You've got to get the right, understand, you're going to have to work through the brokerage community, whether you like it or not. Get yourself the best broker you can find. Both certainly uh, meets that, that standard. But he was consistently the number one multifamily producer in Florida and the top five in the nation for Coldwell Banker. That's a, that's a lot. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big crown to wear. Uh, he's got a great uh, YouTube channel. No, it's called Bo Knows Multifamily. 
And he's just coming out with a brand new book, okay? Multifamily Investors Who Dominate. It's, about, it's coming out on Amazon, Audible, and Kindle at the end of next month. So let me bring in Bo for a second. Hey, Bo, how are you doing? Good, man. What's going on, brother? Good to see you again. Well, first of all, thanks for, thanks for joining us. And I, I know you're a busy guy. Just opened up your shop here a few, few weeks ago. Yeah. All right, congratulations on that, first of all. Appreciate it. So how's the new business, Bo, coming along? You and I haven't chatted in a light year, so this is great. I, you know, this is terrific, man. And, you know, like I said, we go back and we've looked at a lot of deals together, bought a bunch of deals together, uh, et cetera. So how's business? Tell me about it. Um, it's actually quite busy. I, I, was, I was doing some review of stats over the weekend um, just for my, my, my regular market uh, reports that I do. And, you know, I'm, I'm referencing some spreadsheets here where I saw, let me, let me give you some stats because these, these will be very interesting for you to, to review. Um, so comparing, you know, even though COVID started, let's call it March, April-ish, really the effects, you know, if there were deals already in contract prior to that, they would have closed in April and May. So I, I look at June through December as sort of being that COVID period, right? So when I compare COVID June through December of 2020 to the same June to December of 2019, the number of deals that's over 10 units went down 47% overall, right? Now, when I look at October to December, so fourth quarter 2020 versus fourth quarter 2019, it went down 35%, which still sucks, but it's gotten better, obviously, right? So it's down. But here's the interesting thing. In the fourth quarter, the number of deals over 100 units went up 56% from fourth quarter 2019. So really, the big negative that happened overall was in the under 100 unit market in the fourth quarter versus the over 100 unit, which I thought was really interesting because a lot of my deals that closed in the fourth quarter were under 100 units, even though I do a lot of over 100 unit stuff. Now, I will say that starting January, you know, the, the number of deals that are available for sale, particularly over 100 units, has just like, it's, it's just nothing. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, I, I know LoopNet and CoStar are not where all deals are posted, right? There's a lot of deals that are done, you know, just sort of off market by brokers. Um, but if you look at the northern half of Florida, which is what I cover, the entire northern half of Florida from Orlando to Tallahassee, Jacksonville, Daytona, Gainesville, Ocala, Two days ago, there was only one deal available for sale over 100 units, and that was in Orlando. One deal wow. in the northern half of the state. Wow. Now, listen, there's other deals that are out there that are being pushed, but the point is, is that when it's not on a public listing website, a lot of times that means that the seller is just testing the price, right? Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not really fully committed to, to wanting the full blast out there. Now, some of them don't want the full blast because they don't want to alert staff or tenants or whatever, and that happens, right? But, you know, the majority of the time, certainly over 50%, if you're selling 150, 250 unit deal, you want your broker to push it to the world. And the fact that there's only one out there right now is pretty insane. What do you think is causing that, Bo? um, Well, I I think there's several dynamics. Number one, you know, uh, even though 
even though owners are collecting roughly 88 to 90% of a 95% occupancy, right? So think about that. A lot of guys are, are 94, 95% occupied, but they're only collecting 88 to 90% mm. of the rents. That little 5% difference, right? when divided by a cap rate is a seven figure number on the value. Wow. So if you're a guy who owns a 200 unit community and you're performing just fine, I mean, at a 90% collection, you're still cash flowing just fine. Everything's good. You're not in distress. And so you're thinking to yourself, why the hell would I come to market right now and get beat up on a million and a half, $2 million just because I'm not collecting the full rent roll when you know that, you know, the, that the medicine's being passed out, people are going to be protected. If you can just kind of last another six, seven months, you know, then your rent roll is going to creep back up and you're going to be able to sell for, for maximum sell price. The next thing is that, you know, of course, with Democrats now controlling the House and the Senate, there's, there's you know, no one knows what's going to happen yet with 1031 exchanges, long-term capital gains taxes, death taxes, all the tax realm of it until we know exactly how much Democrats are going to go for, you know, is it, are we going to take capital gains from 23.8 to 44.3? Right. Or are we going to go to 30? You know, what, is, what does that mean? Is the 1031 in jeopardy? And so, you know, I, I think, you know, it's easy to look at the extreme part of this, but really what's probably going to happen is somewhere in the middle. And until investors understand what that is, they kind of chill out, right? They don't, they don't really want to go there yet. So that's why right now, you know, as of sort of December, January, a lot of the transactions I'm seeing are under 100 units and primarily under 75 units, mm -hmm. because even though that same dynamic exists, it's not as big of a punch, right? So if you own a 40 unit deal, 40, and you're collecting 90% of a 95% occupancy, it ain't a seven figure difference, right? It doesn't... Right. In addition, most of the under 75 unit deals are more occupied and more rents are being paid than the larger deals because typically the rents are less, right? So if you have a 150 unit community with two bedroom, two baths, you're probably collecting $1,050, $1,100 a month. Whereas on a 40 unit deal, that's probably an $850, $900 a month rent, right? So more people are paying it. Yeah. So that's, that's the difference. Impacting that, uh, that number between two incomes being able to afford one rent payment versus two incomes not necessarily being able to afford that one rent payment. Do you think that's playing a role? Yeah, I think it's some of it, right? I mean, it's again, it's such a small difference, right? If 90% right. collection of a 95% occupancy at 5%, it's a very small number. And so right. there's a lot, you know, it's not like we're, not, we're, not, we're collecting 75% of a 95% rent roll. You know, then there's a whole lot more we can read into things. But I think, yes you know, two people paying is certainly better than one. And, and especially when, the, when you're not having to pay for all the amenities of a larger project. Mm. Well, I think that dynamic, Bo, that you brought up is, is, is amazing when you start realizing, you know, the collections. So if you're missing four or 5% of your collectibles and you're underwriting that against a cap and you know, what are caps today? I don't even know. What are caps in, in class A? You know, yeah. it's funny. I, I, I swear to God, man, I get, I get calls, you know, every week from just insane calls that, you know, five years ago might not have been insane, but I get calls from investors. Hey, Bo, I'm looking for 150 plus units, market rate, yeah. Yeah. BC class. You know, we want 7% cap rate or better. And I'm thinking, 
dude, I haven't seen seven cap plus since 2016. Like, what are you talking? Where are you from? Yeah. Everything is in the fives. And if you found a six cap, like that's gangbusters. I mean, you, you're, you've hit the lotto. Of, and I'm talking about a true cap rate, Dan. I'm yeah, not yeah. talking about, right. I'm talking about, you know, property taxes, post-sale, you got a vacancy market factor, you got reserves, you got management, you know, and then I look at all the expenses to make sure they calibrate with National Multifamily Housing Council income and expense averages, you know, because sometimes you'll look at rent rolls or, or hey guys, cash flows. I, yeah. Hey, guys, I hate to cut you short. We're going to have to go to commercial break. Bo, would you stay on until yeah. the, the end of this yeah. commercial? Yeah, you We'd bet. We'll be back on the other side. Cool. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Evest Technology is quickly becoming the number one capital syndication platform in the U.S. Used by real estate professionals, cannabis growers, movie producers, and startups, Evest solved two pain points time and money. Its platform is 95% faster and 95% less expensive. As a Reg D506C compliant platform, Evest will rapidly design and prepare your private placement memorandum. Upload no-cost operating and subscription agreements. Seamlessly accredit investors and automate funding and dividend distributions. That's why Evest is number one. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Once in a while, an investment comes along that is safe, secure, with high yields. Approved project to build 61 apartments in an opportunity zone, Wood Village, the fast-growing suburb of Portland, Oregon. The developer is offering the high yield of a minimum 20% per year return on investment to partners. The commitment will be backed up with the developer's share of profits upon sale of the project. The experienced contractor will supply a completion bond to assure a timely build-out, seeking total equity of $3.5 million. Details found on website www.firstwestrealty.net. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to The Opportunity Zone. You're invited to send us your questions and comments, and we can respond on a future show. The email address is dsummers at evesttech.com. That's dsummers at evesttech.com. 
Now, back to the Opportunity Zone. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the Opportunity Zone. This is uh, your host, Chris Magda. And uh, obviously with us today, we've got uh, Dan Summers and our guest host, Bo Berry. Um, Bo, we were really enjoying everything that you were uh, given to us before the uh, end of the before the commercial break, and just want to jump back into uh, some of the uh, some of the conversation we were having even during the holdover. So just jump back in with Dan and and kind of uh, go go with it. Well, I'll let me lead by saying and agreeing that the devil's always in the details, no doubt about it. Okay, you've got to really be able to drill down on your due diligence. So on that note, Bo, what do you think is the most underrated and probably overrated? Uh, element of a, of a solid due, of a due diligence process? Mm. I would say overrate is definitely the cap rate. It always, it's, it's irritating to me. Um, and it's mostly from, I wouldn't say new investors, because I also see it from some pretty prolific investors with hundreds of units, but they'll call and that's first question they say is what's the cap rate? And it just doesn't make any sense to me because a cap rate is composed of the current owner's income which will be different to you. It's the whole reason you're buying it. You know, minus the current owner's expenses, which will be completely different to you when you buy it in terms of property taxes, insurance is gonna go up, management fees may be different, reserve factor required by the bank, all these things, equals a net income that you won't have as a buyer. Mm -hmm. And then you divide that by a price. It just doesn't make any sense to me, right? For instance, I just put a deal under contract, actually it's going into contract today, that is like a two and a half percent cap rate on existing, right? But it's got 32% vacancy, right? The taxes are, are terribly low. Um, the, the rents are 250 a month below market rent. And that's not a bullshit pro forma thing that a broker's saying. They're truly like, I have nine properties within walking distance proving that. And so a lot of guys will see that and they just like, they're just done, right? They sign the CA, they get the, they get the, the financials, they don't look at anything else. The guys who know the market, who go further, who, look, who take the time to go a little bit further, will see that the end cash on cash return and the IRR, which is over the full hold period, including the sale, is attractive, right? And so it's, it's really important to me, I think you should be doing a five to 10 year analysis and taking those all into account. You can still be conservative. You can still, you know, you don't have to listen to broker pro formas in your stuff. In fact, I advise you not to. But my point is, is don't discount just on a cap rate. I think they're very overrated. Yeah, I always got a kick out of value add deals on the street with a cap rate. It, it doesn't make sense. Okay? And everyone underwrites their deals differently, right? So cap rates to me have always been irrelevant, literally. Uh, I mean, back in the day when I would look at an A cap, which is very low back then, uh, <laughs> it was irrelevant because, like you suggest, different management style, right, uh, et cetera, and against what kind of income and so on. So, yeah, totally irrelevant. 100% uh, agree with you. Now, what about uh, underrated? What, what's, underrated? what's underrated? Yeah, you, you know, you, a lot of folks don't think about this. I actually did a video like of this on my channel I think it's one of the coolest, sexiest, most underrated calculations you can do, but tells so much. And it's called the break-even occupancy analysis. Mm -hmm. So the equation is um, total annual operating expenses plus your total debt service divided by your total income. 
Now, what it tells you is what is the occupancy at which once I go below that, I'm losing money, right? Mm. So, for instance, when you're, when you're, if you're looking at an asset and you crunch the numbers and the break-even occupancy is, you know, 81% and, and you're in a, in a B market and never in the history of the world has that asset gone below 91, you know, even in, in the, the worst times of, of 2008, 2009, then that, that it's just, it's a neat little equation that says, yeah, that makes me feel pretty freaking good, right? Mm-hmm. Versus if your break-even occupancy is, is 89%, and even when you put in your value-add analysis, you know, you have to be at 95 to survive, I'd be scared to death, right? So, it's, it's a very underrated um, analysis that I love to use to see you know, it's, it's basically like a, it's a, it's a risk adjustment, right? It, it tells me how good of a location it is, where the rents are, the expenses. Um, I love it. I, it's, it's like your backstop and your risk analysis. It's all a backstop. Yeah. You, know, you know when you get to there, you're covered. And if you can't get to there, you should walk, right? That's right. That's right. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a make or break deal, but it's a damn sure powerful one that I use. I'm a very conservative guy. I'm like the opposite of Dan, and that's why Dan's a hell worth a hell of a lot more money than me. But I'm a mutual fund guy. Like I, I just, you right. know, I'm not heavy on stocks. I just give it to a financial planner, and I earn my seven or eight percent, and I'm good. For me, the break-even analysis makes me sleep at night, right? So when I I buy office and industrial, so that I don't compete against my customers on the multifamily side. And when I'm doing those analysis, that's what I look at big time is, you know, what, how bad can things get and I can still pay my mortgage and all my expenses. Well, the other advantage of using that analysis, and I'm with you about 100%, is not whether or not to walk, but at what price you're making the offer at. That's mm. right. Right? Never be afraid. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I've been known to make offers that people would laugh at, but at the end of the day, you make 10 offers and two hit, you're making some money. So, yeah. totally agree with you. But on that note, Bo, where do you see some opportunities nowadays? We got the pandemic. Oh, you know, we got a vaccine now. Uh, the election's behind us. Uh, the sun's bright here in Florida, at least over here in St. Augustine. Where do you see opportunities, you know, in the near future and then long term for, you know, investors? Yeah. I'm going to list a few things, but I'm going to concentrate on one of them. One of the ones that I'm, you know, that I. Uh, that you're seeing a lot is motel to apartment conversions. I think those can be successful. You know, the, the, the difficulty with those are the motels that are selling at a low enough price when you do all the construction to make accessible as apartment mm. are typically in crappy locations, right? So it's right. really tough to find those. I'm also seeing student to market rate conversions, particularly in college towns like Tallahassee and Gainesville, those student housing properties that are driving distance away or more are not able to compete against all the bedrooms that were delivered within biking or walking distance. And so some of those, depending on the floor plan and and how it's laid out, can be successfully converted and have. New construction is also another place where you're starting to see more new construction pop up because we just can't compete. We can't keep up with the demand for more housing that's needed. But, But the one that I'm really seeing that you know, just on improved apartment complexes, I did an analysis on what rank or what class rank is the best class to buy within multifamily that gives you the biggest pop when you value add. And this is an absolutely fascinating statistic. Oh, well, we lost you. 
Chris? I'm still here. Yeah. Not a problem. He'll come back on. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Give us some color around uh, how you and Bo originally got connected and, and what that relationship looked like and what you guys have done together. So uh, we shopped around for brokers. I'm a big proponent of using a broker. Hey, and uh, a broker real quick, just, just for those who have it, who, because who, I get that question all the time. How do I find a broker and how do I know they're the right one? <laughs> well, first of all, you got to be in the space. Okay. If you're right. in this, if you're in the space, and you're looking at deals, I start with the broker that actually has the deals on the market. And then from there, I you know, basically do an interview, all right? What kind of deals did they close? Who are your, some of your other clients? How long have you been in business? All right, I, 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 you know, I wanna see some of his analysis. I think when you say broker, are you talking, you qualify for us. Are they talking about an investment broker, a real estate broker? Who are you looking for? Sure, a real estate broker. Okay. So, you know, a good broker earns his fees. Let's start with that premise. And having done this for so many years, I accept that. A good broker like Bo Berry, as you can hear and attest to, he knows his stuff. He's... He's one of the best brokers I've used in over 40 years. He's right up in the top five. He's an investment partner to you, not just, not just a negative, cost, right? Negative, I hear negative. these guys all the time when they speak to me as a, as a private lender, and they talk, they talk negatively about the cost of the, of the broker. It's not a cost. He's part of your team. Oh, right? no They're doubt. No, no. You do. He's worth every, he's worth his weight in gold. He's not a cost to you. He's an investment with you. He's a hundred percent. If he's good, if he's good. So right. a, a broker's dialed into the market. Okay. Like Bo is, he'll give you statistic after statistic after statistic that you can put into your due diligence, your analysis, your performance, et cetera. And he's dialed into the community. So look, you know, I live in St. Augustine. Offices are in Jacksonville and he's in Gainesville, right? So he's dialed into that market. So he knows what property managers I want to interview to take over the, the management of the property. All right? So he knows that market, et cetera, can help me. Although he's a selling broker, he knows that we have an appetite for more products. So he's, a, he's not going to balloon some kind of performance. He's going to give me statistics for me to study. So he's he, in for the long haul with you. Absolutely. Well, here we are, you know, six, seven, right. eight years later, we're still chatting and he's just good. So he's not a time waster. So to find a solid broker, you know, you got to be out there sniffing. First of all, you got to be in the game. As I said originally, you got to be in the game. And if you're in the game, you know, you know, the big players and you start looking at offerings, you start looking at deals, get into the market and start kicking the bricks in the mortar. So there's a lot of due diligence, uh, getting your fingers, fingernails dirty, finding the right guy, and then have a conversation with someone like Bo. I mean, he's he's as solid as you can you can get, but they pay for themselves. They do. I've never considered a broker, a, you know, a, a cost uh, a cost basis. It's definitely an asset to any deal. Certainly, the deals that we sold and we bought. So take me back to kind of the first deal that you did when you put, you know, your, 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 you know, toe in the water with Bo and, and, and what made, what was kind of the, what made that a success with you guys? And oh, great question. Uh, I knew of your relationship. By uh, college towns. Okay. That's the common denom- denominator over the last 40 year career. I like college towns. I didn't find a lot of big competition. We had the capacity to write the check. We had the capacity to close deals quickly. So going into those little towns, I was steering clear of all the bigger houses. 
at least that's the way it was, the bigger houses, and there was a certainty of closing. So we had a great reputation for being able to close and doing fast uh, due diligence. One of the what things- was the size of the property and, and, what, and what kind of drove, because it sounds like from what I'm hearing, you found a niche in there, or at least a, a, general, a general niche, and you kind of stuck to it. So what was kind of the, give me kind of a little bit of color on, on the, the, the type of property and where location, et cetera, because we all know locations, location, location, but kind of, sure. kind of guide us around that. Well, again, location, you had to be able to bike or walk to classes. Okay, that okay. was the common denominator. And once we drew a circle around, you know, the college, it drove us to certain buildings and 20, 30 buildings. And we sought out the owners, uh, both sought out the owners, and we made offers uh, accordingly, but they're all value add. All of my deals, most of my deals, we had some new construction, but most of my deals, if it wasn't new construction, was absolutely value add. But we had that play figured out. We had a very strong management team, uh, et cetera. So we could analyze potential rents, operating expenses, et cetera. And that's the key to this thing on value add. But as, as Bo was suggesting, you really have to be able to dial down on every working component of a rent roll and projections, occupancies, and use realistic numbers. Uh, so the key to being successful in this space is the, the ability to say no just as readily as you'll say yes. Don't waste anyone's time. If it's a no, it's a no. Get it, kick it to the curb and get out to the next deal. So you but, say new construction was your main main? No, 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 no. no. Value add was our main. We did oh, value add. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all. All value add, uh, 90% of our acquisitions was value add and maybe 10% construction. Okay. So on the value add side, what, what was kind of the, what was, what was the occupancy ratings for the most part that you were trying to look in with, like Bo was talking around earlier? Um, when, you looked at, when you looked at a subject property, what was kind of your, your thinking going into it? So uh, the, the occupancy rates were always relatively high in the 80s plus. Uh, so we weren't buying into a bad situation. We underwrote the existing rent roll. You could, cover the, you could cover the debt service coverage ratio right off the bat. Well, DCR was covered. Okay, never yeah. bought a negative cash flow deal in my life. Uh, yeah. But there was always opportunity in the rent roll. So two things, you attack the rent rolls and then you attack, attack the operating expenses. And we were able to attack the expenses because we managed so many million square foot of, of real estate. So we understood the intricacies of, of everything, every moving component. And then the market rents are the market rents. So we always had to find a value add play in both the, the income and the expenses. And more often than not, uh, we did. Lazy ownership, tired ownership, um, you know, unwitting ownership. Uh, ownership was too big, okay? They forgot about this asset. That was a lot of the deals we bought. Uh, we bought a lot of institutional club, uh, assets that, you know, the institutions own and it was time to get out and, you know, we, we scooped it up. Uh, so at the end of the day, there's, there was always an opportunity out there. You just had to look at every deal with a critical eye uh, and underwrite its potential and then kick it to the curb as fast as you can and get out to the next deal. So let's talk around that for a second. So you said you were focusing mainly in college towns. All right, what, what do you see for the future as far as that's, that's concerned um, in, in, in 2021? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's still beginning to still unraveling because of the pandemic. Uh, but I, I, I do see a lot of desperation out there. I see yeah. a lot. And, and, and Bo touched on it. Hotels, motels. I've started to see a lot of motels coming to our, our platform, our syndication platform yes. for acquisitions. 
What do you think about converting them? I was having this thought, and give me your opinion, because this is something that popped up the other day. As you know, one of my clients was on there, right? So, so what is your thoughts around around hotel potentially if, if they're laid out properly? Because um, some are, some aren't, but potentially converting into into um, multifamily is that a, is that an, even a thought? Uh, what what's the what's the opportunity with converting a motel M motel? to multifamily. Is it a hard conversion? Does do the numbers make sense? Because there's a lot of hotels and motels on the market right now. And I, I see that as an asset class that may have some legs. Yeah. The, um, so I just, I, I know of only one deal uh, that I personally know about that was done by a customer I've done business with. Though I, I know of others that have been done, I just haven't been able to dive into the numbers. On the numbers side, the gentleman that worked on the one I know about, the motel was actually in a very good location. Um, it was like 80 something units. And he said, financially, he'd never do it again. He said the biggest mm-hmm. issue that he didn't know about was the, was the fire systems. And, and I, don't, oh, I haven't oh. looked into it, but I apparently, yeah, it's like, they're not set up uh, the way it's supposed to be for apartments. And he spent something like 30,000 a unit. Oh my Lord. Yeah, getting it, getting it back to where it's supposed to. And uh, it was, it was just tough. I mean, besides that, it's, it's getting, you know, it's getting the full kitchens in there, right? So, if you want to okay. get Fannie Freddie financing, you need the full kitchens and sometimes they just don't have the room for it. Yeah. So, before this, this segment comes to an end, I, I want to, you know, tap into your, your knowledge of the marketplace. Where do you see opportunities? You know, is, is maybe as a result of the pandemic, I don't know, but where do you see opportunities now? Yeah. Um, and did, did you want me to pick up from where I was? And yeah, 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 yeah. So I'll end the one where it's where I see the biggest opportunity. So I'm looking at I'm looking at all of the closings, um, and what's interesting, as I told you before, I, I I track asset classes by A, B plus, B, B minus, C plus, C, and C minus, right? And so the biggest, most phenomenal asset class you can buy in terms of the jump is a B class asset, right? So let, let me let me back up a little bit. A C minus asset, if you bought a C minus asset, which is running in the mid 40s a door, and you were able to value add it to a C, there's about a $20,000 a unit jump, right? But you know, you're going to spend seven, $8,000, and so there's not as much profit. To go from a C to a C plus, there's about a $15,000 a unit jump. To go from a C plus to a B minus, it's about $20,000 a unit. To go from a B minus to a B, it's about 25,000 a unit. But where the opportunity is, where the unicorn is, if you can take a B class asset to a B plus, $50,000 a unit jumps, right? Now here's, here's the DNA of each of those. A B class asset is on average late 1980s into the early 1990s. Um, you've got about a 1.8 bed to unit ratio. So it's a good mix of ones and twos with a little bit of threes. They're closing at about 125,000 a door. You got about 1,050 to 1,100 a month rents and units are about 900 square feet. If you can go to a B plus, the B pluses are early to mid 2000s. Um, they're closing at about 175 to 180 a door. Now, the, I'm covering the northern half of the state, right? So, that's, this, is, mm-hmm. this is all of the northern, northern half of Florida. 
you're at about 1,300, 1,350 uh, square, uh, uh, or excuse me, rent. So 1,300 to $1,400 a month rents and units are about 1,000 square feet. So here's what you're looking for is, you're looking for a B-class asset that is as new as possible. So it's gotta be a B, it's gotta be in a B to B plus location, but instead of being mid to late 80s, try to find one that's in the late 90s to early 2000s that is in a potential B plus location. It just hasn't been value added yet, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the greatest Delta. Now you can also go from a B plus to an A, but those are even more rare. And that that offers you about a $35,000 unit jump. The problem is, is that the B plus would have to be in an A location and you'd have to value add the hell out of it because the average A class deal is only four years old. Not to mention your cost of materials would go way up and then cost of materials are higher right. than ever. So. so the perfect one, man, is that B class deal. Like those are, and there's not a whole lot of, it, there's, there's a decent amount of closings, but to take it to a B plus, it, you know, you have to have the right amenities so that when you bring it back up to, you know, to sort of that 2005 to 2010 level, it can compete. But there's a hell of a, a hell, handsome reward for it. So let's talk about inventory. So, I, you know, I get the seller's residence, the seller's hesitancy to sell right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in, in the marketplace. Do you see that changing in 2021? Do you see any more product hitting the street? You know, in, and if so, you know, what's that event that's going to, you know, catapult some new product onto the marketplace? Or are we just stuck with dribs and travels of deals here and there? I, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near the trading, the, the number of trades as 2018, 2019, primarily because from 17 through mid 20, so much inventory was sold. So in any given market, the average percentage of inventory that sells per year is about eight and a half percent, right? So eight and a half percent of apartment complexes per market per year sell. Some of them are in the fives to sixes, like Gainesville. In Orlando, roughly 10 to 11%, but on average, it's about 8.5%. So if you think about over the last three years, you roughly have 30% of the inventory that has already sold. So it's very difficult to buy something that's already sold in the last three years and actually value add it and sell for a right price. Then you start talking about, okay, well, so now you got, let's call it 70% of inventory left over. How many of those have refinanced in the last two years? Because the rates are phenomenal, right? Like my biggest competition right now as a broker is not other brokers, it's refi, wow. right? So how many, so it, it, let's just say another 20% is refi. So now you're down to only half of the inventory. Guys, how much is, so how much much, is that? I, I hate to hold you short, but we're out of time. We're going to come back to you next week. Thank you guys again. 